today. <laughs> uh, our text comes from Psalm 23, verse 5. Psalm 23, verse 5. It says this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week, Matt introduced us to uh, the theme that we're going to be considering over these few weeks, three weeks, and namely, it was the difference between scarcity and abundance. More specifically, the way in which we conceive the world, whether it's a world of scarcity or abundance, has profound implications for how we exist and live in this world. When we look at the world, does it seem hostile and angular and pinched and thin, red and tooth and claw requiring us to fight just to get everything that we need? Or when we look at the world, does it brim with possibility and abundance? And as you probably know, whichever way we naturally lean on that question, we lean that way in our guts. Not necessarily in our conscious, rational thoughts, because our thoughts can think one thing while our guts go a different direction. So last week, Matt explained what it looks like to live in the world and view the world as a place of scarcity. And this week, my job is to convince you, and more specifically, to convince your guts that this world is actually a place of astonishing abundance. So I'd like to do that under two headings. Number one, the fearfulness of scarcity, and then number two, the joy of God's abundance. Number one, the fearfulness of scarcity. Now, I'm going to be reiterating a few things that Matt said last week, but I'm going to try to come at it from a different angle. And what I'd like to do is show you what it would be like to have your guts organized by scarcity, and then to show you what kind of prayers would emerge from that mindset. In order to do that, Let's visit our friends in ancient Mesopotamia. Now, every society, as you probably know, tells itself stories about where we all came from, where everything came from, what's wrong with the world, how is it going to get fixed. We all tell ourselves those stories as societies. And the Mesopotamians recorded their creation story in answer to all those questions in something called the Enuma Elish. For anybody who speaks Sumerian, forgive me, I don't know. That's <laughs> proper pronunciation. We'll, we'll, we'll say that. And according to that story, here's how everything was created. The gods themselves were created, but they were cranky. Not yet. We'll, we'll come to this in just one sec. Um, the gods themselves uh, were created, and then they were cranky, and they were suspicious of each other. And eventually, that suspicion led to a civil war among the gods. And one of the results of that war was the slaughter of one of the gods named Tiamat. Now, out of Tiamat's slain corpse, the gods made the earth and all that is in it. Then the gods gathered up Tiamat's conspirators, and they put them into court, condemned them, and then slaughtered all of them and out of their slain corpses, they created humanity. <laughs> and the reason given for the creation of humanity is because the gods needed servants. They were lazy. They needed someone to do the work for them. So 
they didn't say they were lazy. That's my gloss. Um, so that was how, according to the Enuma Elish, we all got here. That's what everything is for, and that's what we can expect out of human beings. But add to that some geography and some historical inquiry. If you remember back to your high school history classes, you may remember that Mesopotamia was settled in something that was called the Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And the reason why it was called the Fertile Crescent is because it was very, you know, fertile. Yep. Provided great fertility for the growth of crops. However, there's one thing that they had to fear, and that was the unpredictable flooding of those two rivers. If your whole life is dependent on the crops that you've been planting in a field, it's a big deal when the floods come and destroy everything and you don't even know when it's going to happen. One day you have abundance, next day the flood comes and washes it all away. Additionally, in the land of Mesopotamia, there, there wasn't really any natural barriers to fend off invaders, and so they were constantly raiding the people who lived there in Mesopotamia. Okay, now, what do we have so far? We have a group of people who believed in their guts, because this is what their creation narrative told them, who believe in their guts that the gods were fickle and violent, and out of the chaos of that violence, the world was created. And furthermore, human beings were created as slaves to those fickle and violent gods. Additionally, their lives were filled with uncertainty, when will the flood come? When, when will all that we have worked so hard for be destroyed? When will the next band of raiders come in and kill our sons and loot our houses? Now that is surely a theology of scarcity. Now let me show you what a person growing up in that world whose insides were organized by that narrative, let me show you what they would have prayed. Now, I don't, I'm not making this up. I'm not speculating. This is actually a recorded prayer from Sumer found in the fourth millennium BC. Here it is. May the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May the known and unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. The sin which I have committed, I know not. The misdeed which I have committed, I know not. The Lord in his anger, in the anger of his heart, hath looked upon me. The God in the wrath of his heart hath visited me. The goddess hath become angry with me and hath grievously stricken me. I kiss the feet of my goddess and crawl before her. How long, known and unknown God, until the anger of thy heart be pacified? How long, known and unknown goddess, until thy friendly, unfriendly heart be pacified? Now listen to that. This poor penitent who's praying this is altogether fearful. I don't even know how I sinned. I don't even know if it's the God I know that's angry or some unknown God that I've never heard of who's somehow venting his wrath upon me. So I'm crawling in deepest servitude. Just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. But please stop venting your anger upon me. 
So that's the kind of prayer that might emerge from a society, from a people, from a person who really believes that this world is a world of scarcity, of chaos, of violence. But my question is, what would it look like if, if we ingested another narrative? Like, uh, I've taken all this time to share this with you because I have a feeling that even though we don't rationally believe this particular account of origins uh, from the Mesopotamians, we naturally lean this way in our guts. The, the world is a fearful place. God cannot be trusted to care for us. Therefore, we will care for ourselves because at least we can trust ourselves. Now, I know, I know these words don't match the prayers of our mouths, but if our guts could articulate themselves in prayer, would it sound something like this? Well, my question, again, is what would happen if we ingested another narrative? What kind of prayers would a different kind of narrative produce? And more to the point, what kind of belief system was it that enabled David to pray something like this? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is more than enough. My cup overflows. Even when my enemies are circled around me, even when death has cast its shadow over me, even then the goodness and mercy of my God are with me. This is what he's saying. But how did he learn to pray this way? Well, he certainly didn't learn it from the Mesopotamians. Where did he learn it? Well, you know the answer. He learned it from the Bible. So let me see if I can do some remedial work on us by immersing ourselves into that grand narrative. So let's look at number two, the abundance of God. And let's begin in our own creation narrative, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, th listen to how different this is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the first thing we see here is that there is one God and that one God created everything. And far from being chaotic and violent, this God brings order out of chaos. And then we see the manner in which he creates, namely by speaking, and that witnesses to the great power of this God. It's no effort whatsoever for him to create. He just says it, 
And it is. He provides light and water and ground and animals and birds and plants. And what is the nature of all that he creates? You know it. You've read it. It's the, it's the crescendo. It's the refrain that shoots through the whole thing. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. That's the nature of all things he creates. And then God creates human beings, and here we see a completely opposite view of the Mesopotamians, still in Genesis 1, but now in verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And just in case you forgot, male and female, he created them. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That threefold repetition says that something significant about the image of God. God makes human beings in his image. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, the meaning is clear in what God gives these human beings to do. He says, have dominion over all things. Now, this God who creates all things, he, by, by right of creation, he's the king over all. He has authority over everything that he makes. But he does not have a body. He is spirit. Now, he gives, the, what does it mean that human beings are made in his image? He gives some of his own dominion, some of his own authority to human beings because he cannot be seen. He makes a visual representation of his authority and he calls them man and woman. That's what it means that we are made in his image. Human beings, listen, human beings are God's vice regents on the earth. I mean, it could not be more different from the Enuma Elish. Isn't that astonishing? And if you want some words for your astonishment, then let Psalm 8 help you. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Human beings are so powerfully insignificant in the wider order of creation, and yet... The psalmist says, yet we take up space in the attention of God. Not only, but that's the lowest common denominator. Not only do we take up space in his attention, but he has crowned us with glory and honor. Who are we that we should be honored in such a way? And yet it is so. So this is how our story begins. A good God creating all things exceedingly good 
And he does it by his powerful words. He crams the earth full of his abundance, abundance of goodness, abundance of kindness, of grace, of glory. And he gathers up some dust, breathes into it, and crowns that dust with glory and honor. Surely, our cup overflows. It's not the result of violence and chaos. It's the result of glory and goodness. But there's far more abundance than that. The creation narrative ends with God resting on the seventh day. Now, there are so many reasons that he rests, but surely one of the reasons he does not rest is because he's worn out from the week's work. We've already established that it, it, it was effortless for this God to create all that it was. He just simply spoke it. There was no strain. There was no toil. There was no exhaustion. But he, he rested to witness to all his creation that there is more than enough. Later on in the history of God's people, the Sabbath will be the defining act that separates God's people from the surrounding nations. Every other nation worked themselves to the bone, never rested, not even one day a week. Why? Because this world is defined by scarcity. But God said, rest one day a week as I did. In this way, you will witness to the watching world that I have made this creation abundant in provision. So abundant that you can rest one day in seven. Now, if I didn't have to keep going through the narrative, I might pause here and wonder aloud whether our current discarding of the Sabbath is a symptom of a scarcity mindset, but I'll leave that for Matt next week. I don't know if he's going to talk about that. Could you? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's not, not required. Um, okay, so as we continue through this narrative, of course, we all know things don't remain in this state of bliss. The serpent comes into the garden, deceives human beings, and it's the first time that a human had grown suspicious of the abundant God. Maybe there is more that he's withholding. But by acting on that lie, all was lost. Humanity was cast out of the garden into the east, never to return again. But even so, God proved his abundance, did not depend on human righteousness, but on his own overflowing generosity. So he chose Abraham. And through him, he promised that the abundance of his blessing would come to the earth, to all nations, through Abraham's family. But as Abraham's family began to grow, they found themselves in dire straits. A famine swept through the land, and God reserved, as it turns out, an abundance of food for them in Egypt under, his, under the wise administration of one of his people, Joseph. And the Egyptian Pharaoh had favor on the Israelites as they came because they were related to his most trusted administrator. But over time, as new Pharaohs rose to power, they forgot who these Israelites were and what their relation was and the favor that they had previously expressed to them. And they became an enslaved nation in Egypt. And when God heard the cry of their misery in slavery, He came in the person of Moses with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to save them. 
And through the working of his great power, you remember these stories, through the working of his great power, God led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And when the Egyptians came running after them to reclaim their workforce, they were pinned against the shores of the Red Sea and they turned around and they saw the glory of God protecting them. And then the glory of God brought them through the Red Sea. And as the Egyptians pursued, God brought the Red Sea back together and destroyed their enemies. It's astonishing. But it wasn't long before they began to cry out again. Even though their cup surely overflowed, they began to cry out again in the long journey in the wilderness. They had no food. They had no water. Wouldn't it be better to return to Egypt to insert their wrists back into their shackles where at least they knew they were going to be fed? And so out of his abundance, God provides manna from heaven to feed them each and every day. God provided water from a rock to slake their thirst. And it must have been a mighty stream to to quench the thirst of hundreds of thousands of people. And at the end of their journey, right before they're going to go into the land of promise, Moses stops them and preaches to them his final sermon. And that sermon is basically what we have in the book of Deuteronomy. Now listen to how Moses describes their experience in the wilderness. To them, that was a rough time. We were hungry, we were thirsty. But listen to how Moses reorients their thoughts in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now listen, listen. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. In other words, for 40 years, you neither planted nor sowed, and yet God fed you. For 40 years, you walked on your feet, and the soles of your shoes never wore out. For 40 years, you lived on nothing but the abundance and generosity of God himself, so do not forget his goodness towards you. And then after Moses dies, Joshua leads them into the promised land. And it is a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty in which all of their needs will be met. They were a nation of slaves prior to this. They did nothing to deserve a land like that, nor could they by military might enter the land for themselves and occupy it. They could not do it. But the Lord their God fought for them and delivered his people into the plenty that he promised. And surely their cup overflowed. Now, I don't have time 
to tell you all the ways in which they took this abundance for granted. I don't have time to tell you all the ways in which they spiraled into idolatry and lived by the creed of scarcity all their days. Even though they had rejected his ways and committed unspeakable violence to his covenant, God still came for them. God was not done overflowing their cups. And it's astonishing. The cup is overflowing, and they look at it, and they say, it's empty. But God God is not going to cease pouring out his goodness into their cup. He promised that he would, and we see that in Isaiah 54. And just listen to the promise of abundance as it comes to us. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Yes. But how? How would he do such a thing? How would he restore his broken and famished people to the abundance for which they were created. Well, the height of this drama reaches its crescendo in Bethlehem when God's deliverer is born into a stable. Jesus of Nazareth came to his people and said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. This is Jesus. This is is why he has come, to give us life in abundance. And so we see the abundance of God pouring forth from Jesus' hands when he takes bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it out to a hillside of hungry people. And not only that, but there are 12 baskets full of leftovers taken up, one for each tribe of Israel. There is more than enough. And on another occasion, Jesus is at a wedding feast, and the wine has run out, and he creates more wine than any party could ever drink. But not only wine, it's the best wine they ever had. There is more than enough. Jesus put his hand on blind eyes, and they could see. 
Jesus spoke to twisted legs and they could walk. Jesus freed men and women who had been possessed by demons so they could live lives of abundance once again. Surely their cup overflowed. But the abundance had not ceased. The abundance comes not only in Christ's life, the abundance comes in Christ's death as well. There remained a reckoning for sins. And these sins were committed in the whole history of God's people. The sins stretched all the way back to Adam and Eve and ran through every human being that had ever lived, that, that was descended from Adam and Eve. And Paul witnesses to this reality in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. Maybe like one? No, not one. <laughs> no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so, in the climactic act of the, the pouring out of the superabundance of God into his people's cups, Christ went without struggle and laid himself on a cross of wood. And he showed that the reckoning for sin was to be accomplished by the means of nails and thorns and ropes and wood. Except, <laughs> in an astonishing turn of events, those nails in that wood would not pierce the hands and feet of all Adam's sons and daughters. Instead, they would tear the flesh of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord for their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, behold Christ upon the cross. The incarnation of God's abundance and steadfast love and mercy for you. And surely our cup overflows. But God's gracious giving has not yet ceased. He has told us the end of the story. At the end of the story, all that has been lost to us through the years of ruin will be restored. And again, Isaiah gives us the image in chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And in that day, all the abundance of God will be ours, untainted, full of joy, and glory unspeakable. And in almost the final stroke of his pen, 
John of Patmos shows us exactly what that abundance will look like. Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, there, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing ever unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Brothers and sisters, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. People of God, this is our story. There isn't one place at which we could turn our heads backwards, look behind us, and say, that's where God ceased to be gracious to me. This is where his kindness stopped. This is where grace was cut off. The Lord has never ceased to do us good. Never. The Lord has never ceased to pour out abundant salvation upon us. And though we are nothing in the grand scheme of things, he has, by his unfathomable grace, made us the recipients of the storehouse of his abundance. So, let our guts be reorganized around this story. And let us pray with David. Surely our cup overflows. Amen? When we come to this table, as we do each and every week, and one day, there will be a feast of well-aged wine and food full of marrow. And what sits before you here is a taste of that banqueting table. None of us earned our place at this table any more than the Israelites earned the manna that showed up every day. This is a table not for those who have provided for themselves their own abundance. This is a table for the poor in spirit who cast all their well-being on the abundance of God. And so if that's you, then come. If you quiet yourself long enough, then you will taste the abundance of God towards you in these elements. You will taste his goodness. You will taste his kindness. You will taste his everlasting love. And so, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray.
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you are interested in having your guts reorganized around the narrative of God, then this meal is for you. It's not for those who have it all together. It's for those whose lives are falling up apart. It's not for those who uh, have achieved their own salvation, but for those who know they have no other hope of salvation than Jesus Christ. So if that's you, I invite you to this table. Come. <laughs> 